Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, here with my extremely fabulous co-host, Ms. Carrie Plitt, down the line from Oxford. Hi, Carrie, how are you doing? Hi, Octavia. I'm I'm doing really well because I just had some very old dear friends who do not live in the country come and visit me here in Oxford with their two-and-a-half-year-old child, and I had the best time. Um, I played games. I made dinner for all of them. It was uh, refreshing, and it reminded me that the things in life that are important are spending time with friends and family and eating good food and nothing else. Yes, those are the things. (laughs) Those are the things. (laughs) How about you? Well, I'm inspired. You're basically, I'm not doing so well, mainly because the other tab I have open on my computer right now, apart from our show script, is the doomsday clock. And I don't know why. Why? (laughs) Just before we started recording, I think lots of people were tweeting about it, um, saying that the doomsday clock has now got the closest to midnight it's ever been in like the history of the doomsday clock or something. And I clicked on it. And just before we got on this call, I was reading about it. And it is, let me tell you, one of the most depressing things you can find on the internet. So um yeah, yeah please. who are the people doing the doomsday clock? That's what I want to know. Well, Who's exactly. deciding how close we are? Just don't do it. You could just not move those hands. Yeah. You, in fact, could just move those hands the other way. I'm going to start <laughs> Carrie's doomsday clock. And it will be like, the world is never going to end. Go back. Yeah. Have some, ha- eat some dinners with friends. Exactly. <laughs> Everything's great. Have dinner with your friends. <laughs> You're doing fine, sweetie. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Let's have dinner soon and I will stop looking at the doomsday clock. <laughs> great. Okay. And before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash lit friction. You will also get access to an extra mini sode each month. And there are now 25 waiting for you there. Um, and you can suggest themes for us as well. We chose a non-listener suggested theme last time because we wanted to talk about spare. So if you're interested in our thoughts on spare, which neither of us have read, um, g- it's come true. on down. Neither of us have read it, but we uh, swerved the conversation into one about the very particular talent that is ghostwriting um, and loads more things. It's a brilliant conversation, we promise. So yes, if you want to hear it, you can sign up to become a patron um, and we will be forever grateful. Patrons, thank you as ever for your wonderful support. Now more than ever, because we no longer have our sponsorship, it is the reason we can keep making the show And a few more of you have signed up recently and we are just, you know, thrilled. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But now back to Minisode 36. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format for these Minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. That's right. You know the drill. Today, our theme was inspired by a chat that I had recently with the author Sheena Patel, who you may remember Carrie speaking to on the show a few episodes ago about her brilliant novel, I'm a Fan. So Sheena had just listened to actually a different episode of the show. This is a very meta intro. (laughs) It's just, (laughs) I'm just giving you like props to all of our other brilliant episodes. But basically, Sheena had just listened to the episode we did with Chris Krause many years ago now, where she was talking about her book, I Love Dick. And Sheena was really struck by how direct Chris was in that interview about money. And it got us thinking that actually it really was time we did a show about money because 
It is this totally inescapable presence in our lives. It is a topic that in a lot of cultures, certainly in the culture here in the UK, is a pretty major conversational taboo. And also it's kind of everywhere right now because we are here living through a very serious cost of living crisis. And it feels like in the press every single day, there is this kind of fixation on money, but maybe not really that much conversation about it beyond a sort of fixation and slightly kind of hysterical sense of reporting. So it feels like after years of terrible conservative rule, it is, um, you know, a hot topic. I think the newspapers are very heavy at the moment on basically extremely patronizing articles about how to tighten your belt, which seem to be Mm. speaking very much to the wealthy or the middle classes, very much not to people who've already been living beneath the poverty line for an incredibly long time, right? Who are like, already experts in how to live in an impossible situation. So I don't know. It feels like everyone's talking about money without necessarily really talking about money. Um, And we wanted to think about where books come into this, you know, from nonfiction, like Otego Uwagba's money memoir, really, we need to talk about money, which gets right into all of these topics, to the raw excesses of 1980s Wall Street in novels like American Psycho. How does literature deal with the subject of money? Which is, I see, a pretty massive question. So let's start with a simpler one. Carrie, do you think that all books are to some extent about money? Mm, A leading question, but a good question. (laughs) You know I love to lead. (laughs) Well, I guess the Marxist framework for thinking about these things is that all books and indeed all art um, are political. And anything political is also about capital. Mm, so I led you right to where I wanted you. I'm so pleased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm getting that very wrong. Um, <laughs> it sounds good I, to me. <laughs> I think that's true to some extent, right? It's hard to tell a story mm. set in any kind of society without money coming into it at some point. Um, and I'm just thinking about the last two books I read kind of to test out that idea. So Foster by Claire Keegan, which I recommended on the show, a girl is sent to be fostered by some distant relatives. And of course, the the kind of lingering um, truth behind the reason she's fostered is because her family can't afford to take care of her um, for some time. So that's, that's all about money, isn't it? It's who has mm-hmm. money, who doesn't have money. And then Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe, that's all about money and power. That's all about a family dynasty that amasses money and what they do with it. And um, the way that they use money to cause pain, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, right. to to claim to alleviate, but actually cause an immense amount of pain. And the thing that allows them to do that, again, is money. So yeah, I, th- I think that's probably true. I think some books obviously have money more at the forefront. And sometimes it's something that's lingering in the background or kind of goes unsaid. But it's it's hard to to think about humans and not ultimately be thinking about money. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, to do the test on my reading, I just read Avalon by Nell Zink, which is very much about the relationship between financial and cultural capital, actually, and how that then shapes relationships, whether those are familial relationships or friendships or romantic ones. Um, And Nell Zink is often writing about desire and the way that desire maps onto capital as well as onto sex and love and experience, you know? Um, She's very interested in the power structures created or reinforced by differentials in these things as well within relationships. I was also thinking about Elif Batchiman's writing, which 
I think is very much about money and the ways in which it structures society and also culture and relationships, but it's really not ever directly about that, right? Mm. Um, she's a writer who seems intensely conscious about these things. And that consciousness is just contained in the writing, even when she's writing about, you know, the horrible embarrassment of having a crush on somebody. <laughs> Marx is in there. Um, <laughs> Do you think that Elif Bachman has become our new Donna Tartt? Oh my God, 100%. She comes up in almost every show that we do. <laughs> yeah, she is. I have a huge crush on her. Like, I can't deny it. <laughs> um, but also, this is a statement that is very much based on feeling rather than hard evidence. So don't necessarily quote me on it, but it feels to me just now, thinking about it, that stories that can be about relationships and not really about money or not explicitly about money as well kind of have to be the ones that are set in a world where everyone is financially secure or where their sort of their wealth is a given because otherwise you bring any lack of stability into it or fluctuating stability into it it has to work its way into the narrative because then you immediately you have a profound power differential between the two people let's say if it's a love relationship do you know what i mean or mm. i guess another option i mean in that sense i'm thinking of those kind of old classic novels like the novels of Evelyn War and things like that. But actually Evelyn War was Those always writing about, about money. money. Exactly. Yeah. They're just about money through the highly critical, in fact, of privilege, right? Through this very specific lens. Or you have books like, uh, I was thinking of Emma McBride's book, The Lesser Bohemians, which at first like, isn't really about money. It's about this really intense love story set in 1990s Camden between this 18-year-old drama student and the troubled but intensely charismatic actor she falls for, who's much older than her, he's 38. It's not about money expressly, but it is about money completely because they are living this bohemian, i.e. not really financially safe lifestyle. And it is also about these shifting power dynamics within the relationship that are kind of predicated on his age and her youth and also their compulsive need to be together. And it's not acutely about money, but it is steeped in these questions of how do you find stability when you have no fiscal stability? Do you seek emotional stability or do you seek sexual transcendence? Like when you get into this sort of bohemian world, capital means something different, right? When you're in the world of people who are dedicating themselves to art, there is a suspension of the need for capital sometimes in writing, but of course it's actually folded into the entire thing just at a deeper level. I mean, I, I feel like I'm not making that much sense there, but do you know what I'm getting at? I do. And it's so funny because when I was trying to think of examples of novels that weren't about money, I also thought about The Lesser Bohemians because you almost need to, the only way to think about it is if you're stripping away almost everything from a novel except for the relationship between two people. I think if you interrogate it, money is still has to be a part of that in some way, but almost that it's willfully ignored by the characters themselves. In some ways, but then also, don't you remember in that novel, they're like a lot of that novel they spend in this kind of dank Camden bedsit. Yeah. And she's always hungry. And that is money. That is yeah. about money. Um, but then I was also thinking of two novels that are very explicitly about money and also about relationships, <sighs> like Luster by Raven Leilani and Assembly by Natasha Brown, which are two very different books. But one of the things they have in common is the way they interrogate the role of money 
in the relationships between the narrator and the men in their lives. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So super interesting. Two good examples. Thanks, darling. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, as we've sort of got into, like people have a lot of trouble talking directly about money. Quick question though. Do you think that's true more in the UK than in America? Yeah, I guess that's the stereotype, isn't it? Right. But I don't know if it that's actually true. I don't think people are that upfront about money in the US either. I I suppose people are more candid generally in the US and in the UK everything is coded, but in a weird way because things are so rigidly coded in the UK, sometimes I think that leads to more clarity than in the US when it's kind of a wild west when it comes to money. If does that make sense? That's interesting. Yeah, it does. It does kind of tracks with my experience, I suppose. I think a lot of my American friends are very upfront about this stuff, but that's also because they work in the arts and they're also like all quite rash. (laughs) I I should also say, you know, I haven't, I didn't ever work in the US in a full-time job. I left Mm. after college. And so I think a lot of that conversation starts well, it starts happening in college when you go and you're suddenly exposed to a crazy wealth differential with the people that you're living with. Well, and that college thing is one of the, that kind of weird disparity between you and your peers that is exposed in those environments is something that Aleph Batcherman gets at so brilliantly yes, in both yeah. of those novels, right? Like, Yeah. And it's so often a theme in campus novels, isn't it? That, that right. money question. Totally. And maybe that's one of the reasons that the campus novel is an interesting, very rarefied microcosm, but it, it, it can still be a microcosm for much bigger questions than simply, you know, wealthy kids learning about stuff and drinking too much, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's almost always a character who is a little bit less rich than the very rich people who sort of like <laughs> brought into their world and must kind of be exposed to um, the rarefied world of, of very wealthy people um, yeah, so in, a, true. in a campus novel. Well, I guess, I mean, that leads me to the next question I wanted to ask you really, which is, do you think that the novel really does offer a useful way into talking or thinking about money, because it allows you to do it at a slight remove by talking about it in the lives of these fictional characters, rather than having to show your own cards, I guess. Mm, Yeah, well, I do think so, because story is a great way of exploring things that people don't always want to talk about. And there are taboos around discussions around money, I think, in all cultures. And it's funny, I was thinking, okay, how does a novel do this? And I think one of the ways that money is most efficiently spoken about in literature or or art more generally is in satire. Yeah. When you think about money, art about money, so many of the great, great, great examples are satirical. So you mentioned American Psycho. I was also thinking about um, TV shows and films like Succession and White Lotus, mm. um, Triangle of Sadness, which I kind of hated. But, you know, all of those are are send-ups of rich people and satires about wealth. Um, but I think it also happens in more realist fiction. It can truly examine 
and turn over what having or not having money can do and how this changes people's circumstances and relationships in a way that really can be confronting in a good way. And I'm thinking in that respect about novels like Ian Forrester's Howard's End, which is all about money and people's relationships to it and those who have and those who don't have it and what choices that causes them to make in their lives. But, you know, also examinations of poverty, like A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith or, you know, the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante. I think books can can shed light on these things in a way that a conversation doesn't necessarily. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, also just listening to you talking, I was obviously thinking of Dickens, right? Dickens Mm. was like a huge writer of money in a way. His books are so much about that and about the way that money structures society in ways that are totally unfair as well. And the difficulty of, of moving between financial classes, I suppose you could say. I mean, I was also thinking of um, the novel, The Sound Mirror by Heidi James, which is about three generations of women within one family. And it really examines the way intergenerational trauma kind of makes its way down the line and how this interacts with the different kinds of opportunities that come with living in different times and also with greater or lesser wealth. So yeah, I think it's uh I think it's really really rich territory for fiction. Yeah. And I would like to see I'd also like to see novels where characters just ask each other what they earn more. <laughs> I think this is a this is like a question that I wish people were less uncomfortable being asked. I am fascinated to know what everybody earns and very very happy talking about my own kind of earnings, because when it comes to money, that is power. Like information truly is power, especially when you're thinking about the gender pay gap and um, the more exploitative end of the arts kind of world where very few people are paid very much. The ones that are paid a lot are paid a lot. And um, most of the people making the work are paid very, very little. Um, And I think that's something that I would like to see novels tackle a bit more. And I think that is something that Sheena Patel really gets into in I'm a Fan, you know, like the kind of injustice of these and the exploitation of these systems of art production. Although, you know, the example that comes to mind when you talk about people talking about what they make is in Jane Austen, where people are always commenting on how many pounds somebody has a year. Um, wow. But the, although it really yeah. it really makes you think about inflation and how crazy it is, because we just have no context. For, and, and it's so funny, they'll be like, he has a hundred pounds a year. Like, <laughs> the Lord of the manor. Um, <laughs> he has a hundred pounds a year in a 48 bedroom house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, those are, those books are obsessed with money and very and, and very particular about it too. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, do you find it a compelling topic to read about? Um, well, if you asked me, do you find money to be a compelling topic? I I would have a few different answers for you because you will know from years working with me that I am not very interested in, let's say, uh, finance. I find Actually, it- I think you should come clean, Carrie, that you have a secret portfolio. You've been playing the stock market for years. You are actually a billionaire. <laughs> like, let's be real here. It's time. <laughs> I, I really have such a blind spot when it like 
when it comes to like economics and finance, managing money, banking, I just, I just find it difficult. I am not interested in reading books about it. I can't say I love reading about it per se. So I, if you said that a novel was about a group of bankers or like crypto bros, I, I wouldn't immediately perk up and be like, oh my God, I have to read that. Um, although I did really enjoy that show industry. So maybe that's not true. But when it comes to bigger issues around money, like what we've been talking about, like when it feeds into class, when it, when we think about how money enables or disables us from doing things, then yes, I am very interested. I'm, I'm interested in how money corrupts. I'm interested in reading and thinking about inequality. Um, and I'm interested in basically the human side of what having or not having brings us. So yeah, I guess I think for a writer to do it well, um, they need to dispel with some of the anxieties and offense that people have around the topic of money and really split it open and examine it from all sides. So how do people actually get money? What does it bring them? How does it change who they are? How does lack of money manifest in other lives? Um, you know, those are the questions that I think would light me up and make me want to read about money. I don't know. How about you? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I feel similarly um, in that, like, yes, a novel about a group of bankers or crypto bros would be a hard sell for me. Having said that, American Psycho, complicated though I find that book, is an extraordinary read. And I think an incredible book about money and an incredible book about greed and lust for uh, capital and everything else, right? Mm. Um, and I do think that, especially in the last few years, especially reading articles about uh, the way the wealth gap jumped over the pandemic and this time that was like crippling for so many was also extraordinarily profitable for a very few, um, is like, it's this very sort of almost fable-like moment where we can look at the current system we live within and be like, fuck, this is so broken. <laughs> this is so mm. not working. And I think we need to be more, I say we, meaning meaning me, I guess. I shouldn't speak in the plural when I mean me, but I, I know that this applies to people, more people than just myself. Like, people who consider themselves not very interested in money. Like, I think we need to wake up, actually. I think we need to become more interested in it because, and I don't mean interested in it in terms of interested in accumulating more of it or amassing wealth or seeking to um, hold on to, to money. I mean more that we should be coming face-to-face -face with the, what the system really means more and more because how can we change it if we avoid it and shy away from it? Yeah, I agree, but that can books actually do can help with that. Right. And this is question. where we come back always to the question of like how revolutionary can reading actually be? And I truly believe it can be. And I truly believe that like you can use a really good story to make people think about things that they otherwise um, shy away from because they don't want to do the hard thinking because it's frightening or uncomfortable. And I say that with zero judgment, right? Like we talk about this a lot in the context of the climate crisis as well. Um, and I think that's one of the things that like Natasha Brown in Assembly, Raven Lalani in um, Luster, and um, Sheena Patel in I'm a Fan. I think those are all three novels that are doing really brilliant work to make you consider 
the corrupt nature of the system we live within without bashing you over the head about it. And they are really enjoyable, complicated, challenging reads in all the best ways. Also, I'm reminded a bit of the conversation we had with the author Patrick DeWitt, <laughs> name-checking another episode, guys, of a show. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of it, The True Fiction. Anyway, about his novel French Exit. Sorry, my dad jokes. They're really like at my fingertips at the moment. Um, <laughs> they make me laugh. I mean, I love it. That's why I do them. I live to make you laugh, Carrie Plitt. That's all I ever want is just to hear that giggle. Um, anyway, we did a show with Patrick DeWitt a while ago now called High Society, which um, covered some of this territory in a way because it was focused on the enduring popularity of novels about the wealthy and about high society, like, you know, the big ones, The Great Gatsby, The Picture of Dorian Gray, The Line of Beauty, The Age of Innocence, Love in a Cold Climate, The Remains of the Day, etc. And we were sort of digging into what makes um, reading about high society so compelling in that show. And so in a way, I feel like we can't avoid mentioning it briefly, but what do you think about the distinction between class and money? Can they ever really be separated? Like, can you think of books that are more about money than they are about class? Is that possible? Mm. Yeah, I I feel so unequipped to answer this question. I, I think there are probably lots of like papers written about them. Um, and I don't know what the difference between class and money is totally. And I feel like also, especially answering this question as someone who has been in the UK for 14 years, and I am still learning every day about the intricacies of class in this country. Um, in a way, maybe I wish I wasn't. Like just one small example, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before. I, I remember moving here and thinking it was insane that people used middle class as a pejorative term. Oh my um, God. Yeah. Well, it depends who you're talking to, right? And but somebody yeah. was like, that's so middle class. And I was like, oh, like they make, you know, the, a middle amount of money. And they were like, no, they, it means they like basil. And I was like, what? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I, love I basil for the record. Love yeah, it. They said basil probably. I guess class is about the markers of wealth as much as it is about wealth and money itself. Um, right. and it's also about social standing, which is connected to wealth and money, but not map perfectly onto it so that, you know, the, the example of old money versus new money and, you know, being working class, even if you earn enough to be comfortably middle class, but actually you still have the markers of the working class and you have your working class upbringing. And this is some, something people are always negotiating. So I guess that's my very wishy-washy answer to your first question. And then in terms of your second question, are some books more about money than they are about class and vice versa? I guess maybe some books are more openly about money than just class. I, a, a book I haven't read, Trust by Hernan Diaz, which was recommended by Gabrielle Zevin. I thought it was interesting that when she recommended it, she started her preamble about how you wouldn't necessarily be interested in a, in a pitch for a book that is all about money. But she was saying, mm. you know, you should read this. Or even I was thinking Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe, which is kind of a book about class, but it's really about money. And it's really about money in New York um, and how it manifests in different ways. But yeah, even those books are about class as well. So mm, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I was thinking of, of I Love Dick, which, you know, was partly where the conversation for the show began, like I said in the intro, which is a novel that is about the production of art and capital and 
it isn't about class, but it also is. But because it's in the American context, it's it's complicated by that, right? Yeah. But I think the sort of last point I think we really need to get into is that I really think you can't talk about money and books without talking about the fact that the idea of the writer with a capital W, if the writer is a person who does nothing else but write and is able to support themselves off that writing, live off the money they make from that writing. Like today, that is really mostly a myth. The vast majority of writers are not earning enough money to support themselves. Um, there's the, every year, I think the Royal Society of Writers or something publishes an article where they say again and again, the average salary for a writer in the UK is something like 11,000 pounds a year. And that tracks, you know, there are a few people who make it big and, you know, fabulous luck for them, but the majority of writers are really barely making a living. And so when it is all they do, they are by default being supported either by family wealth, inherited wealth, a wealthy partner, you know, a partner whose earnings can support two people. I mean, the myth of the writer as a self-supporting individual is supported by the fact that also historically, like a large number of the writers who were being published in the UK came from wealthy backgrounds, you know, but even T.S. Eliot worked in a bank. And I feel like when you dig into the lives of a lot of famous writers, historical writers, the fact that they were also working for money in other ways is often brushed under the carpet in the service of the myth of the writer. Mm. And I wonder why the myth endures because it's very damaging. And I think it's very damaging to people's expectations when people want to become writers, the belief that they, that a marker of their success as a writer is being financially self-supporting through their work is such a problematic one because that's just not true, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And we don't talk enough about how little most writers get paid for their work and indeed how little most people in the publishing industry get paid for their work and how we've kind of stuffed art into our system of um, capital because that's the system in which we live, but, you know, made it totally unsustainable for anyone who wants to make art um, and get paid for their work except, except for a select few. And, I should say, I absolutely think that writers and other artists should get paid for their work and, and paid handsomely. And that's, you know, part of the work that I do is, is getting people money for the work that they do and the art that they make. And I feel great about that. But yeah, I agree. It's a crazy myth. And it seems this is one of the ways in which we're, we really seem to be going backwards. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of that funding that the government gives in this country and in Europe is drying up. And, you know, again, I'm to talk about my experience of an American coming to the UK, I remember thinking it was amazing that the government funded writers and artists and filmmakers in a way that they just do not in the U.S., Mm. And it's it would be a real shame for that to go away because I think that is one of the reasons why there is such a rich um, artistic scene in this country. And it's going away because the only people who can afford to make art now are people who have other sources of wealth. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think the other thing to say, I guess, about that stereotype about the... Um, the starving artist or, you know, somebody who doesn't need to get paid for their work is that I think bound up with that is the idea that suffering makes better art. Right. And that it allows us to be okay with artists 
not making money because we see that as kind of a rite of passage to great art. And I think that is really messed up and also not true. Yeah, it's so messed up. I mean, one of the kind of, I was going to say secondary privileges, it's not a secondary privilege. One of the other privileges of privilege, when privilege is to do with wealth, financial wealth, is you have the wealth of time. You have the wealth of security in where you're living, which gives you mental space to open up to make work, you know, like the mental toll it takes if you have unstable housing or if you have work that is provided by a gig economy and you don't know where your paycheck's coming from in a couple of weeks. Like that does not is not conducive to the kind of mental space that artists need to make work. And I think you're totally right that that kind of mythology that's that great art comes from suffering. The number of writers we've talked to who talk about stability being the thing they needed in order to open up their mind creatively is is quite large actually. So I guess bottom line is like buy a lot of books because it helps pay writers. If you are in a a, a job that is handsomely paid, then put your money into the arts where you can. I don't know. I mean, we should all be fighting for a new system basically all the time. Mm. Well, there we go. We've wrapped it up. We've said everything there is to be said about money. Um, I, I love that you make that joke every single time. I know. <laughs> I, d- I need to get some new material. <laughs> Can can we send me on like a like a comedy week or something so that I can like get up to scratch because it's getting quite embarrassing now. Can you learn comedy on a week? Yeah, man. Of course you can. Comedy course. That's right. I'll look into it. We are back to tell you about some of the stuff we've done lately that is not reading and that we think you should know about. So Carrie, what's up first for you? My first recommendation is the film After Sun, which was written and directed by Charlotte Wells, and it was her first feature-length film. And it is just a very beautiful, moving film that I would really recommend that everyone watch. It's based partially on some of Wells's experiences, although we don't, she's been quite tight-lipped about how much it tracks onto her autobiography, which I think is a really good thing. And it's, it's about a father and a daughter on holiday in the 90s at a Turkish resort. We learn pretty early on that they don't live together. The, the father has broken up with her mother. He's quite young in, to the point where people sometimes confuse her for his sister, but they also have a very loving relationship. But you also see that he's a very troubled person. And it's just an exploration of this time that they spent together. And I don't really want to say more, except it is a film about memory. It is about nostalgia. Um, and it's very, and it is very moving and very sad, but in a way that feels totally earned to me. Um, I cried at the end. A lot of people I know have cried in this film, but they didn't feel like tears that weren't warranted for the story. And I think it's very subtly done in a really, really beautiful way. And it's wonderfully acted by the two main leads, one of whom is Paul Mescal, who was just nominated for 
an Oscar for his performance as the dad, but also this um, newcomer, Frankie Corio, who who plays this 11-year-old Scottish girl who is just wonderful and brings so much to the role um, in a way that really spoke to me um, as a girl who is not quite an adult yet, but not a kid anymore. Um, and just that, that really, really tender age of girlhood. I, and I, I loved it. So I would really recommend it. I really, really want to see it. So I, yeah, that made me want to see it even more. Yeah. I, I think it's a really beautiful film. I don't think it's diff, you know, I, I've read some criticisms that it's kind of, it's like it, it, it very heavily borrows from other filmmakers and it's like a lot of other things. And that, that may be true, but it felt very emotionally real to me. And I am willing to forgive work a lot if something feels that way. And also all art forms can be extremely self-referential, you know? Yes. Like that is the history of cinema. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What is your, what is your first recommendation? I mean, it could not be more different. Um, It's a French psychological thriller series on Netflix called Black Butterflies or Les Papillons Noirs. And my God, it was so intensely compelling. But I will say straight up, if you are squeamish about pretty graphic violence, then it probably isn't for you because there is quite a lot of that in it. Um, And I think the way that it treats violence is something that's left me feeling pretty thoughtful, honestly, Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So I don't want to give too much away um, because the twists in the show are really important to your enjoyment of it. Um, But in a nutshell, it's about a novelist called Adrien, who had a major hit once, but since then he's been quite lost and he's kind of been unable to follow it up. He's got that terrible second album syndrome, basically. And um, so in the meantime, while he's waiting for inspiration, he is working as a ghostwriter for hire, uh, which makes it actually a neat little tie-in with our latest Patreon episode. We can slip a little advert in there. Um, But anyway, so he's basically like making money by writing the autobiographies of elderly people, largely as a ghostwriter. And he's hired by this man named Albert, who, you know, is in his seventies or something to write the story to write the story of him and Solange, who was the love of his life. And, you know, so far so normal, but then in their interviews, the story takes a really bloody and dark turn and Adrian gets drawn into this increasingly disturbing tale. And as the story goes on, it starts to have repercussions in his own life. And honestly, what makes the show stand out for me is it is one of the most intensely stylish TV shows I've seen in years. From the opening credits, all the way through the cinematography to the soundtrack, everything is deliberate. Like it really feels like an auteur production. There are references, a lot of references to the French new wave and um, really exquisitely styled flashbacks to scenes from the 1970s. And it's also full of these very deliberate visual echoes to other French film directors and artists as well that like absolutely thrill me. So there's this scene where it references that painting by René Magritte, The Lovers, which are these two people kissing, but they've got fabric over their faces and kind of endless little visual Easter eggs for you in there. And the thing about it that has left me feeling not necessarily um, complicated, maybe a little bit complicated, it treats the violence that it contains in this highly aesthetic way and in quite a glamorizing way. But then 
there are twists in the story that really call that in. And when that happened, and it happens in a very clever way, I was relaxed about it a bit more because I was like, oh, 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 it knows what it's doing. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and also, just in terms of plot and thriller plot, it had twists that I found genuinely satisfying, which is quite rare actually in that genre. It can often be a bit like, okay, fine. Um, and I think the reason that the twist was so satisfying is because there's something really novelistic in the way the story is told, which obviously is very meta considering it's also about this writer. So yeah, it's it's one of the most compelling things I've seen on TV for a really long time. But if you're squeamish, I don't think you'll be down with it. So we'll not be watching it. Yeah. And trigger warning, you know, trigger warning, big trigger warning. Um, what's your next one? Well, my next one is a very profound recommendation to go on winter walks and drink hot chocolate. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think we are obsessed with the fact that January sucks. And January sucks in some ways. But what I will say is the thing that is helping me through January is the beauty of winter. And it has been a supremely beautiful winter in the UK here. It just has. I mean, we have had we've had these beautiful, cold, sunny days. We've had ice, we've had snow. And going outside and seeing the world as it is in its starkness and its bareness in the winter is wonderful and bundling up and just throwing yourselves out to the elements, but in a way where you stay warm is really restorative, or at least for me. And then the other thing that is restorative is coming back from the winter walk and having a ridiculously indulgent hot chocolate, which I did a lot as a kid and hadn't done. And then I was with some friends and we got these like crazy hot chocolates with marshmallows and whipped cream on them. And it just made me so happy. <laughs> and now I am going to buy some hot chocolate and make myself hot cocos more and maybe with some marshmallows and whipped cream. Because I think in the winter, we deserve treats like that after we go on long, brisk walks. That is a perfect recommendation. And I heartily agree. <laughs> and I think listening to you, I was like, yeah, I haven't really done that much winter walks because I've just been unpacking and DI doing DIY at the weekends and stuff. Although I did go on a long walk with my friend Finn um, in Greenwich the other night. And it was a really clear, brisk night. And we walked all the way down by the water and looked back at the city. And I had a hot chocolate and it was amazing. It's the It's the way to do it. Go on more walks. Yeah. I think we think we shouldn't go outside because it's cold, but actually I think there's even more reason to go outside in the winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great recommendation. What is your second recommendation? Well, mine is something that you could actually take with you on a winter walk. Um, it's a really fascinating podcast that I'm in the middle of listening to because they haven't released every episode yet called Havana Syndrome from Vice World News, which is actually executive produced by the one and only Kate Osborne, who is a very dear friend of mine oh. and also yours. Um, yes. So I kind of knew it would be brilliant before it even started because she is an amazing producer. Um, but it is a completely wild story and a really, really brilliantly put together podcast. So if you're not familiar with it, which I wasn't before listening, it's about this mysterious and like horribly debilitating illness that started to afflict very specifically, American diplomats and spies who were working overseas. And it started in 2016, first in Cuba, and then slowly it spread to people in posts around the world in other countries. Um, and 
initially sufferers were reporting hearing varying versions of a very high pitched sound or experiencing a feeling of intense pressure kind of coming from an invisible source inside their head. And these things were happening while they were on government property or occasionally when they were in their own homes or in hotel rooms. Um, and then what would follow would be a series of really terrible neurological symptoms, including catastrophic headaches, memory loss. Some of them had trouble with their motor skills, like all sorts of really horrifying things. Um, and these symptoms lessened the minute they moved out of the space. And so it seems like it's maybe location specific. And some people are left in a worse state than others. It's a total mystery at this point in the series that I, I'm at on, on episode five. It's presented by a couple of award-winning journalists, John Lee Anderson and Adam Entus. And they talk to a completely fascinating array of people, some of whom are ex-spies, some of them are diplomats, some of them are, you know, didn't want to speak and then they do. And some of them are living with brain injury as a result of this thing. They also talk to doctors and scientists who've been investigating it. And everyone is just desperately trying to figure out like what caused this syndrome? Is it some kind of terrifying invisible weapon? Is it a form of mass psychosis? Is it something else entirely? And you know, regular listeners to the show will know that when I was in academia, I wrote about hysteria. So this this idea of a kind of invisible source of some kind of illness that isn't just in the mind that really does manifest in the body as well really speaks to my my special interest. But yeah, it's it's honestly brilliant, and I recommend everybody listens. Mm, yeah, it's so fascinating that I've I've read a little bit about it, and it's um, baffling. Totally baffling and also very, very interesting insight into like the machinations of government, basically. Mm. Um, it's a story about politics as much as it's a story about anything else, international politics. Great. Well, uh, I I can't wait to check out your recommendations. Well, not the first one, but the second one. <laughs> I can't wait to check out that recommendation <laughs> thing that I hate. <laughs> but me too. Right. That's it, everyone. Thank you very much for <laughs> Thank listening. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back with a full show in your feeds very, very soon. 